So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at the final verses in this fourth chapter. And when we finish this evening, we'll be in the uh, getting ready for the home stretch of chapter 5 and finishing out the epistle of 1 John. That'll take us a little while to do yet, but uh, we are getting close to starting that last chapter. Now, as you know, if you've been with our study, you've learned that there is a lot of repetitious material as we go through 1 John. We keep running into the same themes over and over again, and this evening is not going to be any different. Uh, There are subjects in the Bible that are talked about repeatedly because they are very important subjects. And uh, since the Bible talks about them so much, there's really no excuse for our failure to get these things right. And this is the case when when we read 1 John. We cannot fail to miss the truth that we have to believe in the person and the work and the deity of Jesus Christ. We can't fail to miss the truth that God expects us to keep his commandments. And we should not fail to miss the truth that God expects his people to love one another. And I might add this, that as John goes through these subjects, and those are the three main things that he talks about, doctrine, uh, the doctrine of Christ, the the deity and the person of Christ, and he talks about keeping of commandments and, as you know, that test of, of love. He doesn't really give us an option here. For these things, this is not a you don't you don't have a pick and choose Christianity. All of these things are to be present in our lives, especially when we get to the issue. The main overall topic of the book of John is the love of God and the love of God's people towards one another, and so he doesn't present that as optional to us. Loving one another is to be a part of our nature because we've been given God's nature. Now, if you look in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 13, we'll read here to the end of the chapter. John says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now this evening we're going to concentrate on the last three verses. But before we do that, I just want to give you the the first couple of points that have been in your outline that we've talked about over the past a uh, few weeks in the first parts of this message. Number one, we talked about the belief of G- in Jesus. And in verses 14 and 15 speak of this belief. It says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And that is the doctrinal test of our Christianity. Jesus Christ is the Son that was sent from the Father to be the Savior. And we must confess this truth about 
Jesus Christ, that he came into the world as God in the flesh, in human flesh, and he came to save us from our sins. And the sacrificial death of Christ, as you well know, if you're a, a child of God, that is really the, the crucial point of Christianity. Faith in the sacrifice of Christ is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. And so John doesn't allow, uh, the Bible does not allow, and certainly God does not allow for any other way that a person can be reconciled from his sins to God except through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's a very important point for John. And he he tells us that in order for us to have fellowship with God, he begins the letter this way, our fellowship with God is contingent upon this relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. So John shows us that knowledge of Jesus Christ is not merely a matter of our intellect. Uh, This letter was written because there were people that claimed that they did have some sort of superior knowledge of God, superior intellect intellect that's led them to God. But John's writing here to just a a group of humble Christians. Many of them were slaves. Some of them were not well-educated. And they could be intimidated by those who had this pretended intellectual uh, ability or their superiors. But it's not superior intellect that brings us to this knowledge that I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world. That does not come to us because of our intellect. The wisdom of the world, the Bible says, is made foolishness with God. And John points out that we understand spiritual matters not because of good sense, not because of academic accomplishment, but we recognize who Jesus is by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He regenerates the heart. And that's a great blessing for man because it means that the gospel is inclusive of all sorts of people. Our intellectual ability, the race, the ethnicity, social status, gender, none of that matters to God because the Holy Spirit does not regenerate any person based upon a prior disposition of something that is in that person. I mean, this is totally the work of God. So that's true. But it's also true that our faith has to be placed in Christ. And faith is not the meritorious cause of our salvation. It is the instrumental cause. That's the way by which we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, the next part of the message is concerned boldness and judgment. Verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The scripture says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is a verse that was written for people that refuse the grace of God in salvation. It concerns Christ rejectors. And the Bible says that they will suffer the vengeance of God in the eternal fires of hell. And so a person that stands before God in judgment without belief in Jesus Christ will realize how fearsome that the wrath of God really is. Now, some people have the idea that God is Andre the gentle giant. And he's really not mad at anybody. He's powerful, but he's really not mad at anybody. He's not angry at anything. And what you really just need to do is just snuggle up to God and get on his good side, and everything will be okay. Well, that really doesn't jive with Scripture that says God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And it doesn't match what the psalmist writes in Psalm 917. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. No one who is absent of saving faith in the blood of Jesus Christ will stand before God without fear. They will not come boldly before God because there is no shelter from God's wrath. But we learn here that the same is not true of a believer. John tells us that those who have faith in evidence by belief, by obedience, by submission, by love, will be able to stand before God without fear. And that's because we're protected from God's wrath through the sacrifice of Christ. So that's the covering for our sin. All of our judgment is passed, and that was done for the believer at the cross. So these are all very important aspects of John's argument. Uh, These are repeated throughout the epistle. And each time that we we come to these truths, there's just an added layer to it. Just some other revelation that John gives concerning that truth and just goes a little bit deeper each time that he talks about it. Now we go on then to the last three verses. And John says here, verse 19, We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now the third area that we want to talk about, and this is where we'll finish this, this part of First uh, John this evening, is benevolence towards our brothers. Now I want you to notice again the last part of verse number 17. As he is, so are we in this world. And that's referring to the activity of God. That when God regenerates the believer, he gives him his nature, and then we begin to do works that are in kind the same as the works of God. Now, Peter makes an interesting statement in 2 Peter 1. He said, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Now notice there, he says, ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Well, that doesn't mean that we become God, but it does mean that God has enabled us to escape the corruption of our flesh, which was never possible before God gave us this nature. And so when he gives us his new nature, he produces these works of righteousness that we were incapable of doing before. Now, there are a lot of directions that I could go with this, and and I could show you how that Christians do many good works. We could talk about preaching the gospel and about uh, your witness to people, about teaching people, about uh, keeping commandments and all of that. But the chief good work that is the driving force behind this epistle is love. And that's the top of the list for the Apostle John. That is the main point. And it is that if love is not a part of your character, then there are no other good works that are pleasing to God that can possibly follow. Now, why is that true? Well, it's true because saving faith, which comes through God's grace, is an act of God's love, which produces love for God and love for our brothers. And if your faith or the type of faith that you have does not produce that love then you aren't really a Christian. And so therefore, there are no lesser works that could follow. We are, as it says here, as he is in the world. Now what God did was to manifest his love by giving us his son to die for us. And then Christ showed his love by being an ultimate sacrifice, giving up his life and and, uh, giving that for our redemption. 
And in that process of doing that, what Christ did was to become a servant of men. He's an example of submission. He submitted to the Father. And in turn, he expects that every Christian would have that same attitude of submission, and we do it for the good of other people. Now, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to start with a familiar verse here, Ephesians 5, 18. And those of you that recognize that before you even turn to it, I'm not going to talk about on the subject or on the subject of drinking alcohol this evening. Uh, that's not the subject of the verse, really, and that's not what I want to talk about. But it is a good starting point for us here. Ephesians 5, verse number 18 says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, I want you to understand that there is a connection between verse number 18 and verse number 21 As Paul works his way through here to get to the next subject of discussion in Ephesians chapter 5. And the point is that when the Holy Spirit fills a believer, it changes his disposition so that he acts the way that Christ acted. Christ was submissive, and a person that has been filled with the Holy Spirit will become a submissive person. Now, I could, again, point out to you many things on this. I could talk to you different ways about people submit to God, and it would be a valid point for us to speak on any of those issues. But we notice here that Paul puts first, as an act of submission to God, which is the result of the Holy Spirit in us, that we submit ourselves to one another. Now, the rest of the chapter of chapter 5 and the beginning of the next chapter are all about submission. Paul begins by talking about submission of a wife to her husband. Then he speaks of submission of children to their parents and then goes on to talk about submission of uh, slaves to their masters. Now, many people will begin to read Ephesians chapter 5 when you start to get that out to this part about submission and they get stuck in one part and they never get to see the whole picture. They get stuck on the part that says that wives are to submit to their husbands. And that brings up all kinds of heated arguments and people stop right there and say, no, 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 that is demeaning to women and they have come up with all sorts of arguments about that. Well, let me tell you something. There is no point in going to the jugular for the jugular on that argument because if you do that, you've missed the entire point of the passage because the entire point of the whole thing is that a person who is a child of God, who has the love of Christ in, who has the character of Christ, will be a submissive person. He will yield or she will yield, whatever, to that, that, that spirit that's within them to be submissive to other people. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in us. Submission is an act of love. It was an act of love in Christ because what he did, he loved his father so much that he willingly submitted himself to the father's will. And he did that without hesitation. He took on him the death of the cross. Now, there's some people that get into a, uh, this, this, this thing about, the, well, no, there was this huge argument between the Father and the Son, and they were arguing back and forth about whether the Son would actually come to die for us. Then finally, Jesus reluctantly gave in, and then he decided that he would go to the cross and he would die. There are people who actually believe that, that this was almost forced upon Christ. 
This was not forced upon him. This is what he desired to do. Nothing's further from the truth than to think that God was not willing to send his son or that the son was not willing to go. There's perfect agreement between them. And John maintains that when a person becomes a believer, that we become as he is in the world. Now, that's a broad statement. It could mean anything from being in kind, uh, like God, as far as he is towards compassionate towards people, being merciful to people, being like Christ, who, who is loved by God, and thus we're loved by God. Lots of things that we could explore on that. But surely, we have to see that the main thought of the passage is love for our brothers as, as evidence of Christianity. And so that means taking on this attitude of submission as Christ was submissive. Now, let's take a look at this submission. What does that do to us? Well, it causes us to, first of all, forget self. That is not a natural disposition. It's not natural for people to disregard self. And when you think about it, it's hard to think of any action. I mean, if you really examine it closely, it's hard to think of many actions that are taken by people that somehow do not have a selfish motive behind them. Now, it might not be as overt in, in the case of some as it is in others, but somewhere, uh, even the Bible teaches this, that a selfish motive is lurking behind everything that we do that's good for people. So completely giving up self for somebody else, that's really, really not an option for unregenerate people. It's not an option for them. And that's why that John says this kind of love is evidence of Christianity. I mean, it's as simple as lost people cannot do this because this is something that's put into your heart by God. So God implants that nature. It's completely foreign to us to, to do what, what he asks us to do in the natural man. So it, it's, not, it's not our nature. To, to desire to put others above ourselves. So, so what we could do, though, we could be to get saved, and, and then we could just happily go along being indifferent to other people, not really caring or not really uh, trying to do anything at all, not helping anybody. But if we did that, then it would be evidence that we are not Christians. Now, let's think for a moment what life is like in the church what it's like in in Berean Baptist Church regarding this. Several weeks ago, we took a benevolent offering after the Sunday morning service. Uh, At that time, I told you that there was a member of our church who had a real need, and this person had no place else he could go. He explored every avenue, everything that he could do, and there was just no place to go. And so he came to me and said, I have a need. And the way that I handled that offering on Sunday morning might have caused some people to give because they were embarrassed if they didn't. I mean, I just preached a message about being committed to to Christ and how God supplies our needs. And I think that God just worked it out, that it was the appropriate time that a need arose at the very time that I preached that message. So I announced after the service that we would have a benevolent offering, take up an offering. And there were some probably, that were frantic about that. There were folks that were looking for their checkbooks and trying to find pocketbooks and just trying to do anything they could because, in in a sense, maybe not to give an offering would have been kind of an embarrassing thing to do. So I hope it's not true, but we might be able to account for part of our offering because people felt, well, I just have to have a show. I mean, I've got to show that, you know, that I'm going to do this. I'm not a hard-hearted person. But I also know and, and this, this has to be true. I mean, by the amount of that offering that we received, that there were people who gladly 
poured out an offering. And they couldn't really wait to do something like this. It wasn't because they were embarrassed that they didn't give. They, they really wanted to do this because they relished the opportunity to give something to somebody. Now, for some people, giving up their money is absolutely the hardest thing for them to do. They could part with an arm and a leg before they could ever give up any of their money. And, and there are others that realize, though, that everything that we have is a gift from God. And God wants us to share what we have. He wants us to share that, blessings with, that blessing with others. That is a hallmark of true Christianity, a desire to help other people that are in need. And so that's why we pray for them. That's why we devote time for them. And sometimes it's even why we give an offering for them, because we care. Now, you need to get this point because it's very important. God loves us first. And I said, it's not because of anything that's in us, not because something disposed him to love us. He considered simply the great need that we had. And God considered that doing nothing would have left us doomed and damned, headed for the pit of hell because of his justice. Now, the truth of it is, if God had let all of us go to hell, if that's what he decided to do, that wouldn't have changed anything that God is. It wouldn't make God any different because that's just the acting out of justice. He's not under obligation to any of us for anything. And so if he dooms sinners to hell in his perfect justice, that's as much as part of his divine character as anything. And when Christ came to die for us, what he did, he didn't consider self. What he could have done, he could have stayed in heaven, and he could have glorified God by staying in heaven because the justice of hell still glorifies God. But what Christ was not concerned with was reserving that glory for himself. The act of his sacrificial death is because he thought of us when there was nothing in him to dispose him to do so. Now, this is the very thing that God expects from us. We can love people and do things for people when they've done things for us. I mean, when we're already disposed towards them, then... We can do things for them. And we might sacrifice self because we feel that that's a repayment for a kindness that's already done to us. But what about stepping out with acts of self-sacrifice for those that have done nothing, nothing for you and might have even done something against you or to you? You see, that's what God expects us to do. It is a choice to love people. You don't always have to like people. Because liking people is a function of personality and sometimes things just mesh and you get along and everything's fine. Love is not liking people. Love is a choice that you make to do things for people even when it means that you don't click with them, that you disregard the fact whether you like them or don't like them, but because the love of Christ compels you to do something for them, you do it. And that's when it's really hard, and that's when it's really selfless, because that's when it most denies what the flesh would like to do. You know, sometimes I'd rather beat people with a stick. I mean, I just really would, rather than just go with them and bear with them. I mean, there's sometimes when people obviously intend to hurt you, but here's what you have to do. You've got to throw out all that personal stuff. You, gotta, you just got to remove that, and you love that person simply because the love of Christ tells you that that's what you're supposed to do. Now, closely following upon that would be the second point here, forgiveness of others. You're never going to be willing to do anything for anybody out of a heart of love until you're willing to forgive them. 
Uh, you can do all sorts of things for people begrudgingly. You can do it because you think it's your duty to do it. But as you do those kinds of things, you still harbor that anger, that malice, that bitterness towards that person. Now, Christ had every right to be that way towards us. That's because of the way that we treated him. But if he had been bitter, then he never would have forgiven us. And if he hadn't forgiven us, the whole point of his sacrificial death is moved. It does us no good at all. Now, take a look at that again. As he is, so are we in this world. So another hallmark of Christianity is forgiveness. To be like Christ, we have to forgive. Do you know that there are people that are, have been members of our church and they will not come back to church simply because they cannot stand to be in the same room with somebody who did something against them. Because somebody has wronged them, they won't forgive. And their attitude is so strong about this that, that it destroys their fellowship with the entire body of Christ. They distance themselves from the church itself, from people that are in the church. They get out of the place where they can hear the instruction of God's word, which is really the only thing. They can actually change your attitude. That's what you need more, worse than anything. But they do the thing they shouldn't do. They stay away from the church. They don't forgive. And consequently, they're completely out of God's will and God's plan for their life. Now, we need to take a look here at verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. That is a strong statement. That's hard to miss. People that are unforgiving, listen, cannot be Christians. Now, you say to me, well, Pastor Smith, that's not right. That's not right because now you've added something to the gospel. Have I? Have I added something to the gospel? I believe that what the Bible teaches, that according here to the Apostle John, faith in the gospel is a faith that changes a believer to be like Christ. So I think it's a fair statement to say, and it does nothing at all to endanger salvation by grace through faith alone, to say, if you don't love your brother, you're not a Christian. Because according to the apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what he says. How do we know? Well, we go back to chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, that means, as we've learned, you cannot continue in a habitual sin. That is not Christian character. Now, does that mean that there are times, there won't be times that you have difficulty doing this? Of course, there's difficulty in doing it. I mean, you still have the old nature. It still fights against your new nature. And this is exactly why Jesus told us to pray this way in that model prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we have to work at this. And when we're advised what we ought to do, then the Holy Spirit convicts the Christian and either he repents of that sin or he suffers the consequences. Now, what I'm giving you, it's just basic Christianity. These are fundamental principles. So the fundamental principle that Jesus teaches is that we have been forgiven a far greater debt. A far greater debt was owed to God by us than anyone can ever owe to us. And Jesus illustrated that in a parable in Matthew chapter 18. It's about a man who was forgiven of a great debt, a debt that was impossible for him to pay, but he refused to forgive someone who owed him a lesser debt. Now, I'm just going to read you the end of the parable. Matthew 18, starting at verse 32. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldest thou not 
Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Now I think that would probably beg a question, how long can a person go like this and still be a Christian? Well, here's the, here's the thing about parables. Don't try to read more into a parable than it's actually there. This is a parable that's not here to teach us about saving faith. It's a parable to illustrate to us an attitude of forgiveness. So the guy that's in this parable was truly forgiven by, by the person that he owed the debt to because if he wasn't forgiven, the parable doesn't make sense. So obviously comparing that, he's talking about a real Christian and a Christian that did not forgive. So all I'm really trying to show you here is that a forgiving heart in kind is the same as Jesus. So Christians are like him, and they forgive others. And if they don't, then God makes them miserable until they do. Now thirdly, and we'll try to get finish here very quickly, forge ahead with action. Forge ahead with action. See, our Christianity is not just reactionary. It's positive activity. What does Jesus say? Do good to others. I mean, he didn't say, stop doing bad to others. He said, do good to others. That's positive activity. So we don't wait until there's a kindness been done to us. We don't wait until somebody has wronged us so that we can show, oh, we're such great Christians because I'm going to forgive you. No, you have to take another step than that. You have to go ahead and you have to seek for opportunities to show the love, love and kindness of Jesus Christ. Now, it reminds me a few months ago, there, how long ago it was, I don't exactly know, but there was a couple of ladies that pulled into our parking lot because their car broke down. And Lino went out in the parking lot to check that out, and he spent most of the, the afternoon, most of that day, working on that, those, those, those people's car, and he went to get parts and did all of that. Now, the easy thing to do is call a tow truck, stick them with the bill, let them deal with it as best as they could. But what did he do? Well, he went out there, and he spent his time not asking for anything in return, just to help them out. Now, that has a, that has a threefold effect. It, it speaks, it, it threefold. It, it speaks well of Leno in Christian character. It speaks well of the church because this is the place where it happened. And it also has a testimony to the entire community because I have no doubt that those ladies would go away from here and they would tell other people about this. You know what happened over there. This is the way those people are. And this happens because somebody decides they're going to be proactive with their faith. Now let me deal with one more part and we'll finish the chapter. The statement John makes in the second part of verse 20. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Now, at first glance, that seems to reverse the order that John gives us in verse number 19, what he's argued for earlier. In order to love our fellow man, we have to love God first. So we're incapable of loving others unless we first understand that God loves us. So uh, we love God first before we can love others. Well, that seems to be contradictory to what he says here in verse number 20. But John is not trying to give us a chronological order. He is saying that the principle of loving man and loving God fits so closely together that you can't have one without the other. One does not exist without the other. You can't love God without loving your fellow man, and you can't love your fellow man without loving God. Now, the point here that I think that we really need to see, or an important point, is that you can see your fellow man. 
You can have compassion on him. It's easier, or is it easier? I should maybe I should form it in the in the in the form make it a question. Is it easier to love somebody that you can see right in front of you that's having a problem, that's having issues? Is it easier to love and do something for that person, or is it easier to love somebody on the other side of the world that you've never seen before? Well, we all know the answer to that question. Of course, it's easier to see that, that we see, the person that we see that has the need. It's easier to love them. Now, this is sort of a principle that missionaries uh, grow up with or live by, is that um, they're, they're never going to be concerned about people on the other side of the world, not concerned with people that are right there in their own community. I mean, as a missionary, you would never go being a prospective candidate in front of a church for support, and you would never go and, and say, well, I'd like to go be a missionary to, to Africa or uh, somewhere on the other side of the world, wherever that might be. You would never do that if yes, you could show that you had a heart for people right here where you are. So the argument is that you will not do what's harder to do if you won't do what's easier to do. If you don't love people that you can see, then you're not going to love God that you can't see. Now, I'll remind you what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of, worthy of me. So if it was easier to love God than it is to love people, then we would have no problem at all with that verse. Jesus would not even have to say this because we'd already have it figured out that when family turns against us, when our friends turn against us, that's no sweat because it's so much easier to love God than it is our family and our friends. Now, the problem with the verse is that it's hard to do because it's unnatural to forsake your family, unnatural to forsake your friends. You'd rather stay with them than you would to leave them. And if that wasn't true, then Jesus never would have raised this issue. And so we have to say that John is correct in asserting that it's easier to love man than it is God, even though we know that men are sinful and sometimes people hurt us. On the other hand, God has done great things for us. You can't see him, you can't see God, but you can see them. And his point is, if you can't do the lesser to love men, then you can't do the greater, which is to love God. Then John ends the chapter, verse 21, And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And what does John do? Repeat, 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 repeat. Same thing over again. So we can't get away from what he says here. If we are to love God, if we love God as we say that we do, we will keep his commandments. And his commandment in both the Old and the New Testament is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So I can't say, I love God, and just say that and have everybody believe it. It means nothing unless you back it up with action. Love is proved in positive ways, in activities towards those who are in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time tonight. We, we stand in an hour... As we've already discussed this evening, people with so many problems, so many people that are hurting right here in our own church and our family members, our extended families from this church. Lord, it's time for us to take action, be loving people, help in any way that we can, lend ourselves to the help of others when they need us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be that kind of people. And I pray that for every member of Berean Baptist Church, not, not just those here tonight, but every one of us would be concerned about this. Lord, help us to do your will, to love you as we should, and to love our brothers also. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.